I'm Jeff Cohen. If you recognize the name Alex Fletcher, it just might be because we interviewed Rifki Silver, her co-host on the Deep Meaningful Conversations podcast. Like Rifki, Alex has her own inspiring story to share about her journey to Jewish observance. As you'll find out today, Alex is more than a podcast host. She's also an educator, speaker, writer, and the social media creative director for Faces of Orthodoxy. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Alex, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. And we have to start with a shout out to your co-host, Rifki, who right at the end of our podcast, I always say to my guests, if you know someone who has their own story to share, please tell me. And she said, my co-host has a perfect story. You got to have her on. Oh, thank you, Rifki. We're always looking out for each other. <laughs> and that holds, you know, for all of our listeners, we always tell them if, if you're listening to these stories and someone comes to mind that you want to suggest for the show, you can always reach us at Shabbos at TaklasMedia.com. So we're always looking for more guests. Amazing. All right. So let's jump into your story. And I think what our listeners are going to find out is, unlike some of the other guests that we've interviewed, your story is very intertwined with your parents' growth. So I think even before we get to your story, it would be helpful to set some context of the religious background of both of your parents. Sure, absolutely. I guess the bombshell drop here is that my father converted to Judaism when I was 12 years old. And his journey began when he was a young child, actually, in World War II. He lived in Dover, England. And he had an experience that he still remembers. And we actually, he wrote it up in Mishpacha magazine, this Pesach issue, and it's called Got Any Gum Chum? You can reference it. <laughs> And just this story where um, he really developed this affinity for the United States and this dream to want to move there when he met these American GIs who rumbled down his street and were throwing these colorful lifesavers out. And they ran and chased the Jeep and said, got any gum chum? And when he met these like shiny, smiling Americans, as a young child, he said, I want to go there. I want to move to where these people are from. And that led him on this journey to America. Little did he know, and he only realizes at the end, actually at his uffruf, when colorful candies were thrown at him, (laughs) that this was a full circle journey, that his desire to want to go to where these GIs were from, to go to America, was really to find his Jewish soul. So in America, he converted in Atlanta, Georgia, He met my mother in South Africa before they moved to the United States. My mom's South African, Jewish. She was raised in a convent. Her mother was really a self-hating Jew. She was a Scientologist. And South Africa is very traditional. So, you know, she went to Friday night services and they lit her grandmother's candlesticks. But besides that, that was it. And the one thing her father always told her, like the only Jewish education she got was that she should never bring home a guy. Uh Uh-oh. Right? And lo and behold, she brings home this dashing advertising art director, British guy, which is my father. And my grandfather turned around to her and said, remember what I taught you? (laughs) Never bring home a guy. (laughs) And she said, well, like, what did you expect? I went to a convent, you know? So they got married. They ultimately moved to Manhattan. My father was working on Madison Avenue. I was born there. And very briefly, through a series of events, my father started really reconnecting to his inner soul. He said he always felt he had a Jewish neshama. My mother was kicking and screaming. (laughs) Kicking and screaming was not excited about this. She left through Judaism. She married the non-Jew. And he said, we love each other, but you're coming with me or you're not. I got to do this. And he explored Judaism, reform, conservative, but ultimately he he did convert. I was 12 years old. I was the flower girl. I walked down the aisle. Wow. 
you know, my, my parents got married by the justice of the peace, you know, a government ceremony, but my mother always felt like it wasn't a quote unquote real wedding. And when they got married, she said to my dad, you know, what I want on our 25th wedding anniversary, that we have a real proper wedding, uh-huh. <laughs> whatever that meant. And indeed, it was their 25th wedding anniversary, the year that my father converted to Judaism. And they had a, a proper wedding. They had the full-blown thing, a chuppah. They made a party, inviting all of the families who embrace us in Atlanta, Georgia on their journey. They all were their guests in attendance. And I was the flower girl. I, I walked down the aisle. I'm an only child. So that's in a nutshell my parents' journey. And so let's unpack a few of the details of how we got to that point. So you mentioned your parents coming to America. So where did they settle? And in the early years, before he converts, you have a Jewish mother, a non-Jewish father. So what's that early upbringing like for you? Sure. It wasn't a memory of mine, but I guess of my father's. When they moved to New York City, they moved to Manhattan. They lived on the Upper East Side. And my dad has this story that he looked at me. I was sitting in the high chair. I must have been like two years old. And he had this like urge to look at me. And he stared into my brown Jewish eyes. And these were the eyes that when he met my mother for the first time, he had never met a Jew in his life. This is Dover, England. This is not London. He was immediately connected to her through her dark brown Jewish eyes. Little did he know that the eyes are the window to the soul. So he saw those eyes in me and he turned around to my mother and he said, she's Jewish. (laughs) And my mom was like, okay, I know that she's Jewish because I know according to Jewish law, the religion goes through the mother. And my father said, "I, I really don't care about that. I know that she's Jewish and we're going to need to do something to raise her, not necessarily Jewish, but with some type of ethical identity. So then they moved to Atlanta, Georgia, when I was four. And you know, they put me in a Jewish community school, you know, not Orthodox, uh, when I was in first grade. And I remember the Hebrew teacher there was asking and going around the room and asking, what's your Hebrew name? I didn't have a Hebrew name. She gave me my Hebrew name, Chaya, this, you know, Everett teacher. And I would come home with the challahs on Friday and talking about Shabbat. And we had like a sitter, you know, ceremony where my mother decorated a sitter and I came home singing Ashrei. My mother was crying at the table hearing me say Ashrei. She had memories from when she was a child. But the cognitive dissonance was so strong that my parents said, we are not doing this. We're not living this life. And she's so excited about Shabbat, but we're not going to do that. So they pulled me out of this Jewish school in first grade. Wow. So wait, how do you explain this idea that your father, when he talks about like looking into your eyes and seeing we have to expose her to Judaism, why do you feel like, I don't know if it's him or both of your parents are just not feeling like as you're getting some of this and you're getting excited by it, why they're not like leaning into that and saying this is exactly what we thought was the right thing for her? Why are they having this opposite reaction? Well, certainly my father was in a completely different space than my mother. My father just knew that I was Jewish. My mother always knew I was Jewish. He didn't say we need to raise her as a Jew. He, it was more that she is a Jew. And I was raised in this very multicultural home. We had Christmas. We had Easter. We sort of had Passover. We had Hanukkah. You know, we think, oh, a person's a Jew. Therefore, with the next logical step is that you'd want to educate the child to be a Jew. But it wasn't that. They weren't, he wasn't at that step. It was just that she is Jewish. That's her identity. But practically speaking, there wasn't any implementation of what that meant. So what happens next when you get pulled out and how did you feel about it? Or maybe you were too young to really have an opinion about whether this was the right school for you or not. I think I might have been too young, but I definitely have warm memories of this Hebrew teacher naming me Chaya of, you know, all the Jewish ritual was definitely something I think that was a strong memory in my life. They put me in public school. 
Um, there was a good public school in the neighborhood. We were in a suburb of Atlanta. And another, I think, defining moment for me was I was in fifth grade. And this was right before the journey started. And it was holiday season. And there was an announcement in the loudspeaker. Hanukkah was first that year. All the Jewish kids should come to the office to pick up their Hanukkah present. And I didn't know if I should go. I didn't know. And I remember talking to my friends in the the playground and they're like, Alex, you're Jewish. You should go get your Hanukkah present. And I remember turning out to them and saying, but I'm not sure. And it's so crazy as observant Jews. I mean, to imagine a child not knowing if she's really, I mean, I knew I was Jewish, but I didn't know. Yeah, I had such a a, a weak identity. I didn't even know if I was meant to celebrate Hanukkah first that year or wait for Christmas. So there was definitely a certain confusion there. You know, I, listen, I would invite Sarah Stein, my Jewish friend down the street to decorate our, our Christmas tree. And I would save the angel for her to stick on top. <laughs> I was just, that's sort of like how the world is. I think in these, you know, this multicultural mixed marriage upbringing and the, the Judaism isn't so significant that it was going to rattle my bones because I didn't have my identity. I remember my father one year was like, we need to, I, he was feeling nostalgic Christmas time. And he's like, I want to go to mass with you all. I think I was in third grade. And he brought my mom. I remember sitting in a church and my mother was sitting there like really disturbed. And she just walked out. She held my hand. She's like, we're done. So there were some moments where she pushed back. She wanted to send me to a convent. She went in for an interview with me, saw the crucifix on the wall and also walked out. It's in, now in hindsight, I'm like, wow. But I think at the time, I didn't, I didn't think too much of it. I just went on with my life, but I wasn't exactly sure of my Jewish identity. So given the way that the story is unfolding so far and the things you've told us about your mother and father, it feels like at this point it would make more sense that your mother would start feeling like, I want to bring more Judaism into her life. But that's not what happens in your story. It's really your father who gets this rolling. So what happens with him that his feelings about Judaism start to like kick into high gear that he wants to bring it into your family? Yeah, it's a really great question. Now, my mother was not <laughs> leading the ship at all. It was it all came from my father. The irony is like my father's return to Judaism brought my mother back herself. Um, he has an amazing story. He speaks all over the world sharing it. But basically, he actually had a near-death experience. He had a burst appendix with pneumonia on his deathbed. My mother brought me to the hospital to visit him, saying goodbye. It was very serious. And you know that experience really made him question his life, question the balance of, as he explains, you know, materialism and spirituality in his life. He felt his life was very off-kilter. And really through that, he began to explore Judaism. And you should just know about him. He's always this very much a spiritual seeker. He was a Methodist lay preacher in his teens. He, you know, he was the type that backpacked through the Middle East. He was an agnostic at times. So he was always looking. And um, he really decided to explore Judaism. And he went to, as I mentioned, like reform. He really liked the reform rabbi. He, the reform rabbi learns with the Orthodox Kolal rabbis in Atlanta. He really liked him. He went to conservative synagogue, didn't like how they talked a lot about politics. When we went to reform, he wanted to do more. He said, you know, where are your Saturday services? And they said, sorry, we don't have them. Everyone's at the mall or soccer games. And that's how he got interested in Orthodox Judaism. He went to Chabad for a little bit. He started learning. <laughs> he's, he's very sincere, my father. And, and he has a story how he, he was in this Chabad class with, you know, a rabbi and what, like seven people sitting around the table at a lunch and learn kind of thing. 
<laughs> my father was like, I don't understand. You are sharing the secrets of the universe. Why are people not knocking down this door to come and sit <laughs> in this class? So he was like the perfect student, you know, like any teacher would just love to hear that. And um, he found his way to Beth Jacob in Atlanta, Georgia, Congregation Beth Jacob. Rabbi Emmanuel Feldman was the rabbi at the time before he's retired and just started going every Shabbos by himself. He would park the car down the street and he would come home to my mother and be like, listen, I think we should set one night aside that we just sit down and have a family meal together. We're not running out to the mall. You know, your grandmother's candlesticks, maybe you could light them, I'll buy you flowers. And my mother's like, I know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not buying into this. But she did. We had, you know, a little Friday night. And he convinced her to come to Beth Jacob to try it for a Shabbos. She walked in and there was this mechitza. And, you know, my mom is the ultimate, you know, product of the 70s, you know, feminist movement. She had a lot of negative stereotypes about Orthodox women. Orthodox women are baby making machines. You know, the mechitza thing was a big, big throw off to her. And basically what ended up happening, and I always say this, is we have these stereotypes about people often because we just don't know them. <laughs> we think things about people without ever having conversations or about or meeting people. And as she started coming into this community and people invited us for Shabbos meals for literally like Shabbos after Shabbos after Shabbos. And she started meeting women who broke all of these stereotypes for her. She really warmed up and came to completely love the community I'll share a funny, funny story because I think this conflict between, you know, my father and mother is so interesting and really counterintuitive because we often think the woman is the one that's driving the religious growth of the family. So once we were invited to a Seder, you know, in the Orthodox community, we drove, of course. So the father sitting at the head of the table with like stacks and stacks of Haggadahs and he's droning on and on and on. And it's getting really, really late. The wife is falling asleep next to him and he is elbowing her to wake up. Okay. My mother is watching all this. Like, this is awful. Finally, we get back in the car. It's, you know, two in the morning and we drive back to our neighborhood. And my father, as I mentioned, is this very spiritually sensitive guy. And he gets in the car and he says, Beverly, I've just had the most unbelievable spiritual experience of my life. And my mother's like, oh. And he said, I was eating this matzah and it was like the dust of Egypt in my mouth. I I felt like I was there. I felt like I was with the Jewish people leaving Egypt. Now, the irony, of course, is that this is how we're meant to feel at Seder, that we experience it. And that's, again, his Jewish neshama, the first time he experienced it. And and he has these stories, interestingly, the first time they had Shabbos, the first time was like, bang, you know, it was the real deal. Everything it's meant to be spiritually. And he's going on and my mother's listening to this and he's done. And she, I remember this, I'm sitting in the car. She starts screaming at him. Did you see that woman? She is the slave. (laughs) (laughs) He's going off about how terribly the husband was treating her. And of, of course, you know, all of these intonations of like modern day slavery. And she ends off. And if you ever wear tzitzit, she said, that's how she pronounced it. I will divorce you. I'm telling you now, I will divorce you. So we laugh. Lo and behold, you know, my mother wears a shaitzel, my father wears a tzitzel, and they are happily married. But it was a journey that they both went on together. So clearly your mother comes around to this and your family is now going to be Orthodox. But let's now go into your story. Like, how old are you when this is going on and where does this leave you? Because the last time we were covering your story, you were just in public school, like you've been pulled out of a Jewish environment. So what's happening for you? 
Right. So I was pulled out of a Jewish environment. My father goes on this life changing journey. And now I got to go back into a Jewish environment and a much more Jewish environment than the one I was in before. So when my father decided to convert, that meant we had to move, change our community. We lived in Sandy Springs. We had to move to the Toco Hills area. And that means I had to go to a Jewish school. Our whole life had to be picked up. This was literally right before my bat mitzvah. So I hadn't, I was in that stage of adolescence where I wasn't thrust into that. And I think maybe once I was already in that bar bat mitzvah scene, I might've been a little harder, but it was the perfect time. I remember in fourth grade, I told my parents they didn't want to reform bat mitzvah. I don't know what that was all about. I don't know if I just didn't want to read from the Torah, but I think I already at this age had sort of my own spiritual sinking part of my personality. And the biggest turnabout for us was when um, the school that I would be attending, Torah Day School of Atlanta, the English teacher heard that I would be joining and out of the goodness of her heart, just decided that she was going to make a pizza party for me to join and meet the girls. That changed everything for me. I met these girls before I even went into the community. I fell in love with them. They were so sweet. I was so excited to you know, be classmates with them. And that was a pivotal moment for me. And Torah Day School of Atlanta was in a strip shopping center next to like Tuesday morning in those days. Okay, this is like the early 1992. This was not a beautiful building, Jewish day school. This was like really bare bones. And the fact that my parents put me into this struggling Jewish day school was a huge, huge testament to their desire to raise me And finally, right, we said in the beginning, they didn't have that desire. Now they have the desire and they sacrificed. And um, another short story that shows the incredible sacrifice of my parents to commit me to this new lifestyle is I went right before this, the summer of fifth grade, I switched to Torah Day School in sixth grade. The summer before I was in an acting camp at the local theater in Atlanta. At the end of the summer, we did a play. Then all the parents came. And at the end of the production, I had small parts. You know, we all had these little parts in the skits. The director of the camp came up to my mother and said, listen, part of our plan here with this summer camp is that we identify talent for our actors and child actors to then be part of our acting troupe in our main theater. And he said, we think your daughter has talent and we would love for her to join this child acting troupe. And of course, my mother, her first response is, you're flattered. That's wonderful. And immediately, this was before my parents started fully keeping Shabbos before they entered the community. She said, when are the classes? And they said, they're Saturday. And she turned around to him and said, I'm sorry, we're Sabbath observant Jews. And unfortunately, my daughter will not be able to participate in this. And I I see her Saturday to Shabbos podcast. This is a great story for this. And right, like it just blows my mind. They were not even 100% committed, but they were committed to putting me on this path. My parents are in film and advertising. My father's an art director. My uncle's a movie director and producer. My mother is a set, was a set designer and she's a wardrobe and TV and commercials. I mean, this is the world that we're in and that she actually cut me off from a path professionally like this was just remarkable that she had such vision for what she wanted for our family. See, I would think that that story, looking back, you would have tremendous respect for your parents. But in the moment when you're a teen, you might think you're actually crushing my dreams. And and it's great that you want to become observant. But they told me I have talent and this is something I could do maybe as a career someday. So how did you react in the moment versus the way you're depicting the story now of like kind of respect for your parents' conviction? Oh, yeah. I only see it this way now as a parent, (laughs) but I did not know at the time. 
So my mother decided to share this with me at the, I, I would say a funny moment. Probably when I was about 16 years old, we went to see a performance in this theater, okay, <laughs> um, of Annie. I remember like you come out, you're all inspired. And then my mother told me this, what happened. And I was very upset. <laughs> I remember crying. Yeah, that was hard. That, that was hard. I'm not going to lie. Let's go now into the high school and post high school years. You've made this transition to being in a day school. So you're catching up, I guess, on all the Judaic studies portion of what you missed out on in the early years. So what is life like for you in, in that time period, like late teens into your 20s? I will tell you very briefly that it was very hard shifting from public school to this Jewish day school. I was in sixth grade when I joined and I definitely struggled. I always remember, you know, raising my hand, translate that, translate that. My parents tried to get me tutoring and I did get tutoring, but I was way behind these students. And the fact that I was behind was my like motivating force to give me that drive that I'm one day going to catch up to my peers. And it only served me good. And this whole journey, I had to sort of navigate being this daughter of a convert to having a journey of my own. And that really characterizes through my 20s. But I'll tell you really where it all began is when I got into high school, I went to Coed Yeshiva High School called Yeshiva Atlanta. And the environment there was a mixture of, you know, religious kids and non-religious kids. And for many of my friends who were religious, that was a really challenging environment. You know, they sneak out the back and, you know, with their skirt on top of their jeans, you know, and do who knows what. And for me, I was like, why would I want that? Like that is the world that we left. Those things in my black and white teenage thinking are things that like non-Orthodox people do. So why would I want to? Because now we're Orthodox, you know, we left that world. I was always thinking about my journey and things that would detract from my journey were not things I was interested in. Eighth grade, I went on an NCSY Shabbatel and that opened the world to me because Atlanta, Georgia was small. Our, you know, Orthodox friend group was small in Atlanta. And then I started meeting religious girls from as a Southern region from Miami, you know, from bigger cities. And when we joined the community, I was still wearing pants. I wasn't the convert. I didn't have to adopt all this right away. And, you know, everything was at my own pace. So NCSY was the perfect environment. And being in a non-judgmental type of yeshiva high school was also the perfect environment for me to choose what I wanted to do when I was ready to do it. And that's when I met role models for me and my growth. And while I wasn't dressing that way, I, I saw these girls, you know, from Miami, for example, I'll never forget, who were dressed so regally and refined. That's how I saw Sineas, by looking up at these, these girls who were so fashionable. But together, I was like, wow, you could be orthodox and cool. And my yeshiva high school, we were called the orthodorks. <laughs> you know, like that, that's what it was. Like we were the nerds just by the fact that we were religious. And when you had to walk across the lunchroom to go to the washing station to wash your hands for bread. It was like a walk of shame. Like everyone staring at you, like you're so nerdy, like you do that. So it was always this battle, but for me, it totally strengthened me. And every year I was really involved in my chapter of NCSY in Atlanta. I ended up serving as secretary on the national NCSY board in 12th grade. I got National NCSY of the Year Award in 12th grade. <laughs> so like, yeah, right. <laughs> it's funny on my resume for my first job. I actually put that on my resume. It's sort of funny. <laughs> but uh, as a teacher in education. But um, yeah, these were amazing years. I went on the Khaled NCSY summer learning program in Israel and just fell in love with learning. I made it my own. 
And um, I only have the most really amazing memories and experiences. I went to seminary, Darche Bina. At this point, <laughs> I remember reading uh, Ramban out loud or Gor Arye. I forgot some difficult Mephoresh and the principal heard me because he was testing everyone. And he said, I remember he was like, wow, that's good. And that was the moment for me where it was like, I did it. Like I got here, like I caught up, like I'm sitting in this seminary classroom with base Yaakov girls and I'm here, I arrived. <laughs> so it was many years of working and proving my learning skills to get there. I would think there's another pivotal decision given the high school you were coming from that was a mix of religious and non-religious. You'd have some people wanting to go to schools that have the Jewish infrastructure and other people thinking, I want to go into like the best college I can get into and religion is more on the back burner. But I would think for you, this is like a really pivotal decision. So where did you end up going for college and what did you study? So I did go to Stern College and loved it. I majored in English communications and I ended up deciding to get a master's in Jewish education from Israeli. And interestingly enough, when I was in Stern, I mentioned before I referenced sort of the naivety that I had about my background, you know, living in the bubble of Atlanta, Georgia. And um, someone suggested that I go out with this guy. And well, we hadn't like entered Shadduchim or anything like that, but it was like, okay, a roommate of mine suggested, okay, fine. So let, let, let's try it again, only dating for marriage. And I knew nothing. I really knew nothing. I didn't know the rope. I didn't know the system. I'm an only child and have anyone older than you know, older siblings. And I remember like talking way too long with him over on the phone before the first date, like not, you're not meant to do that. And he didn't do any research about me. And somehow on the first date, on the first phone call, I had mentioned that my father converted. And he said, oh, I'm actually um, a Kohen. I think there might be a problem with that. And I'm like, what? He's like, you know what? Let me speak to my rub and find out. I hadn't even met this person. So this threw me for a loop. And it turns out, I I don't know all the halakhic details or ramifications, but a Kohen cannot marry the daughter of a convert. Because when I was born, my father was not Jewish. My uncle lived in Manhattan at the time, and he... um, Quickly got a phone call with me and Rav Willig, you know, big postsake of the YU community to explain things to me. I, I was meeting with this rabbi and this rabbi to try to help me process this. And it was a huge identity shift and challenge for me because I was like, wait a minute, I'm Jewish. I was born Jewish and there is nothing wrong with me. And what does this mean that I can't marry someone in the Orthodox community? I can't marry Kohen. And that was really hard. That was really hard. I, I got through it, but it, was, it wasn't easy. Well, as a Cohen myself, let me apologize on behalf of all <laughs> Cohens for any uncomfortable feelings that we gave you. Uh, but I, I would think it's still a, a blessing in a way that this came out in that first conversation. I mean, you could have gone on three or four dates and felt a real connection. And then this came out later it would have been even more devastating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's always what to be proud about in terms of having a convert in your family. And it didn't make me feel less proud, but I had to go through this journey, as I said before, that like, now this is my journey. I'm not just my father's journey, you know? And like, of course, I'm proud to share it, but there's a certain point that like, I can stand on my own two feet and I don't always have to be defined as the daughter of a convert. And so I'm assuming that your dating life went in a more positive direction after the the Cohen incident. So how did that special someone come into your life? Remember, I went to Kohen Yeshiva High School. So no, I didn't marry someone from my high school. But there was a boy in my high school who actually grew up in a very strong conservative family and got involved in NCSY. And um, he sort of flipped out, as they say. And he ended up in Neri Israel. 
and he sat next to my future husband at a Shabbos table. And he said, I have a girlfriend. <laughs> I don't know how much they talked. And he called me and I'm like, oh, I don't talk to boys anymore. Why are you calling me? <laughs> um, and he said, I, I really think I have a shidduch for you. It turns out my husband was from Passaic and a very dear friend of ours had already thought of him for me, but he wasn't dating at the time. So I had two people calling. And, you know, it's really a beautiful story. He, you know, he actually was born in Latvia and moved to the States when he was like four years old and became religious on his own, went to secular college, ended up, you know, in Israel, Hebrew U, kibbutz, and then found his way to Orsameh. So at this point, he was in Nair Yisrael. He like didn't know how to read Hebrew until he was 21 years old. And at this point, he was 25. So he like top sheer, you know, he, he made it. And yeah, that's how that's how we met. So we lived in Baltimore. My husband was learning. I never thought I would ever be a cola wife or support my husband in learning. I was teaching at Beth Tefillah. It's a community school. I was like living my dream. I was teaching English in the middle school as well as Judaic studies. So I was able to use both degrees and I loved it. And we lived so simply, you know, in cheap apartments. We didn't have any support. We did it all for five years. And my husband decided that he wanted to go to medical school. So I did the supportive COLA wife stint and then the supportive medical school wife stint and continued to support him. All done living out of town, by the way. If you live in New York, this cannot fly. (laughs) (laughs) Can't do it. But uh, we did it. We managed. And um, we came here to Cleveland for his residency. That was nine years in Baltimore, five years of COLA, four years of medical school. He got into medical school with a bachelor's of Talmudic law. (laughs) It can be done and it is done. And then we came to Cleveland for his residency. I'm wondering how your parents felt about this match, like given the changes they had made in their lives and it leads really to this guy now being like a good fit for you, which would not have been the case if your parents hadn't gone on this journey when you were younger. Like how did they feel as they met him and saw that this was going to be your spouse? They were so proud. I definitely think they appreciated his background, his broadness. And at his, oh, for a, all the, the rabbis in Atlanta who are all part of the Atlanta Scholars Kolal, so they are Nair Yisrael rabbis. So they were so proud that I was bringing home a Nair Yisrael guy, <laughs> you know, from their yeshiva. It was very full circle. And it was very, very, very special. They were just, when a child gets married, it's sort of, it's, it's not the end, you know, it's just the beginning. But there is some sense of closure in terms of bringing your child to the chuppah and their dreams really had come true. And so in the introduction, I also mentioned Faces of Orthodoxy and the podcast that you host with Rifki. So I just wanted to give you a chance to delve into both of those while you're on the show. Basically, I was a classroom teacher for a good 15 years. I started writing freelance. I have a column in Mishpacha magazine that I don't write as frequently as I, I wish I would, but that's an opinion piece in the main magazine I occasionally write for. And um, basically what happened with the podcast is during COVID, Rifki Silver reached out to me. She's like, I have this thing on my bucket list to do a podcast. You want to do it with me? I'm like, yes, totally. <laughs> <laughs> this is so on my alley. So, you know, we did everything via Zoom and that was called Normal for Women. It grew and has evolved into deep, meaningful conversations. And our real goal is to give chizak, is to strengthen Orthodox for women. We all need it. And especially us mothers, you know, it's hard. There's a lot of juggling going on and we can so easily neglect our spirituality. So that's really the goal of the podcast. And we're having tons of fun. 
And Faces of Orthodoxy is really an exciting project for me. So I'm the creative director. And what that is, is a social media account. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. How that started is actually a little step back. I don't know if you saw on social. Are you on social media very much? I try not to be as much as possible, given what they say it does to you. But of course, I'm aware of it. Okay. There was a show on Netflix a couple years ago that came out called My Unorthodox Life. Sure. Basically, the star of that show was my teacher in Atlanta, Georgia. Her name was Talia Hemler, and now she is Julia Hart. And um, when the show came out, and I was you know, reading a lot about it and the messaging that it was giving about Orthodox women and Orthodox Judaism, the statements that were being made about us, I was like, we need to stand up. So I am no, I don't consider myself a social media influencer, but I was, I wrote this post on Instagram and it was hashtag my orthodox life. And that erupted. And that was a very viral moment. Now, if you check out that hashtag, there are thousands and thousands of posts of orthodox women who are sharing their stories, why they're proud to be orthodox. And from that, the OU reached out and they said, you know, we want to support this. So I was working with them to place some articles in the secular press and they were very instrumental and very helpful. And then they came back and said, listen, we realized from that whole movement, from my hashtag, my Orthodox life, that we need to be telling our stories as Orthodox Jews. And until Jewish matchmaking, it's not going to be on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, how do we do that? And they, you know, we brainstormed and, and that's how Faces of Orthodoxy was born, you know, to create a social media account, this initiative that tells the day and the life stories of Orthodox Jews. Our stories are so often being told by people who have left Orthodoxy in the media. And social media is where people are at. They're on their phones. So here we are providing content. Every week we feature a different person. Every season is in a different location of the United States. And these are our heroes of faith. These are everyday people doing all different things. We really strive to be very diverse in ages and ethnicity and hashkafa and background. Everyone's Orthodox and They share their stories, they share their personal photos of their lives, and it's been an amazing, amazing project. The feedback has been awesome, both from the secular community, the non-Jewish community, and the Orthodox community. So it's definitely keeping me busy. (laughs) That's between that and the podcast, and I have five kids. Life is filled and blessed and busy. (laughs) It sounds pretty busy. And by the way, I'm glad you mentioned how you're partnering with the OU on this, because being a board member on the OU, I feel like when you ask the average person, what does the OU do? They'll know about Kashru, like they've seen a symbol on lots of products. They may or may not even know that the OU is over NCSY. They may think of those as like two separate entities, but they really don't realize all this other ways that the OU is getting involved in Jewish life. So Faces of Orthodoxy, they're sponsoring this podcast, Saturday to Shabbos. There's like so many other ways that they're helping Jews improve their lives. I'm really glad you brought up that OU connection to what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. And the OU is so invested in strengthening Jewish life and strengthening Orthodox identity. You know, this project, it's interesting. We have literally two different target audiences. One is the secular and the non-Jewish world to educate, but also to strengthen the firm community. And this project is doing both. And that is what the OU is really invested in. So I'm very grateful. And it's amazing to work with them and the resources and the infrastructure that I have working with this amazing national organization. And as a former NCSYer too, what can I say? <laughs> it's it's very full circle for me. And even the fact that you're super busy, I get the impression that you're still looking to grow, still looking to improve, still looking for more opportunities. So what's next for you and your family, say, in the next few years? 
I will just say that sometimes it feels like I'm just keeping my head above water. I don't know if that's relevant. <laughs> Every anyone. parent I, feels that way. Right, right. So my oldest son is in Israel. Um, he's going back for a third year next year. My daughter just graduated high school. So I'm trying to like <laughs> keep afloat, deal with this new family situation with two big kids at the house. Right now, I never want Faces of Orthodoxy to end and I never want my podcast to end. So I feel like I've reached this point where I'm just so happy where I am. I feel like both of these projects use so many of like various... I don't know, strengths and abilities and skills that I've developed over the years and I'm using them now. I totally miss the classroom and interacting with students, but I have a different audience now. And I really don't have too many huge goals on the horizon. I don't really have a five-year plan. I probably should. I'm just so grateful and happy for the work that I'm doing now. Beautifully said. So let's now close the interview with the lightning round and some super fast questions. Are you ready? Sure. All right. First question, you talked about living in Cleveland. Is there a signature shabbos dish that is famous in cleveland oh my gosh (laughs) the one that i make or the one that other people make either one either one oh gosh i think challenge right i think that like this is a signature dish of all jews around the world and i've had some pretty amazing challenge here in cleveland all right second question what would you say to your parents now if you were trying to tell them how you reflect on the decisions they made and how it affected your life, just in like a couple sentences, if they were here and you said, you know what, looking back, all these moves that you made and how that changed the course of my life, what would you tell them today? Well, I would first thank my father. His journey started so long ago and such a young age and little could he ever imagine that he'd be raising this one daughter who now has five from kids and who, who've so surpassed him. And I say this with the utmost humility, so surpassed him in his knowledge and their knowledge and their integration in the firm community. But this is everything he ever dreamed of and more. And just a huge thank you to both of them for having the courage to stand up against the grain, to be independent, to do what they thought is right. And I feel they've passed that gene on to me. You know, I live within a community. I live within a framework. It takes a lot of courage to do what you think is the right thing to do. And I thank them for that. That is a beautiful one to end on. So, Alex, I just want to say thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much, Chef. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.